Welcome back to the Beat the Often Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. On this show, we showcase unusual success stories because unusual times call for unusual success stories. Today, my guest is Isabel Galupo, a successful TV writer here in Hollywood. She's worked on iconic Nickelodeon properties like Dora the Explorer, The Fairly Odd Parents, SpongeBob SquarePants, Rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and so many more. And she is currently employed by Nickelodeon. She's had a great career in the world of children's TV. And more importantly, she has a real mission behind the work that she does that I just find to be so inspiring. So if you are interested in doing creative work or working with children or adding messages and meaning to places that might not have those messages and meaning, then today's episode is really for you. So I'm extremely pleased to announce today's guest, Isabel Galupo. Okay, Isabel, thank you for joining me. How are you today? I'm good. Hello from the other side of the wall. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Isabel is my neighbor. And like most people in Hollywood, she is an acclaimed TV writer. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> but we do happen to live in the same building. But thanks to quarantine, we're on the other side of a wall. So we're, we're doing Zoom anyways. Um, but I've thought that you have a very interesting story for some time now. And I think it's a story worth sharing for a variety of reasons. So why don't you give me the mini version of your professional background? Sure. Um, do you want like origin story? Do you want like a TLDR of what I actually do now? Somewhere What's in between. That? Maybe start with the TLDR of what you actually do now and then okay. as much of the origin story as you feel is relevant. Okay, great. Um, so like you mentioned, I am a TV writer. I wouldn't say I'm acclaimed just yet. <laughs> <laughs> I've been writing full time um, for only a little over a year now. Um, okay. And I've been freelancing um, uh, for about a year before that. Um, and I've worked in, I'm a children's animation TV writer. Um, so I've worked in children's animation since I graduated college in 2014. So almost six years now. Um, and I kind of, uh, I think this is true of TV writing in all genres, in all um, age groups, is that it's, the jobs are pretty hard to get there. Um, it's a lot of uh, people wanting, buying for very few positions. And so I kind of yes. did um, what was recommended to me by professors and other people in, in the industry often was, um, I kind of came in through production. Um, so I started back in New York, actually, I worked on Dora the Explorer and the spinoff mm -hmm. of Dora the Explorer, Dora and Friends. Um, and I was an executive assistant um, for about a year. And then I came out here to LA and I worked my way up through like different production assistant um, and network coordinator jobs. Um, and when did you come out to LA? I came out in October of 2015. Okay. So I was so only in New York for like, yeah, exactly. And I was only in New York for like a year and a half. Uh, couldn't handle the winter. So oh, <laughs> I came out yes. here. Yeah. Like so many uh, of us. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah, you know a thing or two about living in winter. <laughs> I surely do. I know that I hate it. <laughs> yep. Um, so yeah, I and it was interesting because like when I graduated, I all of my friends from college and honestly even high school, I grew up um, mostly outside of Baltimore, Maryland. Um, oh. All of them are in New York still and mostly in the Brooklyn area. And I had just this huge network of support and um, just like this big 
just like happy, like on paper, everything was great. Like I was living with my two best friends. It was like sex in the city. We were like, oh my God, <laughs> nice. we're adults now. And I was just miserable. Like I just hated New York. It was, okay. um, it was just one of those things where I really had to, and this I, I think has been something that has come up over and over again in my career is like, um, everything looking good on paper and me being like, this is not right. This does not fit in what's what my goals or values are. Um, and like really having to like, I'm someone who's very influenced by uh, like external validation or external criticism. And so I've had to at different points in my life be like, you have to shut out what other people are saying or thinking Um you know, and really focus on what is important to you. Yeah, nobody so ever says kind of anything negative to me or about me, so I don't know that at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're. I the live in a one. bubble of total Zen peace. <laughs> Followers? Uh, what are they? Who cares? Right. <laughs> no big deal. Money? Insignificant, but yeah, a trifling who, who matter. Needs it? <laughs> so yeah, okay. well, I don't know yeah. if you feel this way though. Like, I mean a big thing that like family is like the biggest one that I always feel like, even if my family is like totally supportive, I'm always like, I'm not doing enough. Like I, I feel like people are still criticizing me, even if there's actually no criticism. So right. maybe it's also me just like um, inventing that in my mind <laughs> to make things harder for myself. <laughs> I think that's also both a New York and an LA pastime. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The world we live sure. in. Okay, mm -hmm. so you're, you're bored of the winter, which I totally get. You're sick mm -hmm. of the city. So you moved to L.A., and then then what? You did, did you have a job lined up coming in, or is it just, I'm going to make it, I don't know, pack my bags, show up, and see what that, happens? Yeah, so I had been applying and just, like, sending my resume into the void for, like, months leading up to this decision. Um, or I had made the decision, but I had, like, a move date. Um, yes. And so I had just been, like, sending, sending, sending. And then I... I just like emotionally accepted <laughs> that I was not going to have a job. And like everyone, I went to film school and like um, a lot of people say like, you just have to go without a job and just be there. Yeah. Um, which is interesting because I, I coming from New York, I think especially it was interesting because I was like, well, I have an industry job in New York. Mm -hmm. They're definitely fewer than what they are out here, but it's possible. And all of my friends who still live in New York, who I met, on Dora, they're all having like thriving careers in TV in New York. So like, it, it was kind of one of those things where I was like, I I kind of in the back of my head was like, well, I know that I don't necessarily, it, I, it took a lot of pressure off, honestly, of just being like, I just get there and, and, and then also put on a little bit more pressure <laughs> because that is like, my way. there's a short yeah. fuse. <laughs> How many right, months right. can you go on paying the exorbitant bills, the rent, eating food? I mean, the costs here are insane. Totally. And I, that was well, not New York, but anywhere else in America. Well, that's the thing the is like, I, right. And I was like, I mean, I remember when I, so I had the great fortune of um, staying with some family friends for the first couple months that I was out That's here great. just to get on my feet. Um, and they didn't charge me and uh, shout out to the Heislers. I love them. Um, <laughs> they were just so gracious and opened their home to me. So I lived with them for about two months um, rent free and that was really helpful. Um, so I kind of knew that I had that, that cushioning a little bit, um, which was great. And I had just kind of like, it was like a week before I was supposed to move. And I had kind of just like resigned myself to like, I will not have a job. 
I will just go there and figure it out. And <laughs> that like literally that day that I like had that, um, I won't say come to Jesus moment because I'm Jewish, but it was a come to Jesus <laughs> moment <laughs> where it was like, I, I was like, I'm just going to do it. And then I got an interview basically for the job that I um, ended up, I, I moved, I did a week long road trip um, and I got in on a Sunday. And then that next Monday I had a job. I was a, a production assistant on the Fairly Odd Parents. So it was still okay. through the Nickelodeon network. And, and I was really trying to network my way. I had come out to LA and visited that summer before October of 2015 to just kind yeah. of like do some networking. And I, I came as part of a writer's retreat and then I extended my trip to just kind of like bop around the studio and talk to people that I knew who I'd only really seen over video chat um, yeah. from the door offices and meet new people. And I think that really helped. Um, like having that Nickelodeon network was really, really helpful. Okay. So you've landed your first job. You're starting to feel a little bit better. Like the whole thing wasn't a waste of time. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So uh, describe. So yeah, what's, what's day one look like? Um, well, I was, you know, Fairly Odd Parents was such a special show because I think I was on, it was technically called season 10 and a half, um, okay. but I was uh, on season 10. It was like the back half of season 10. Um, and I grew up watching Fairly Odd Parents. So I was like so starstruck. Um, and the production work that I was doing back in New York on Dora and Friends, um, I was doing like the admin assistant thing, like getting yep. people lunch and all that stuff. But I was of also... They did all the audio production in New York okay. um, for Dora. And so I was going to the records, like learning how to, um, when when you record for an animated project, you basically have a script that's locked and you record with one character at a time. And okay. so I had to like prep those record materials. So I would like highlight, if we were recording Dora, I would highlight all of Dora's lines and then um, help, you know, there's a director in the booth with okay. the, with the artist and um, they do like three different takes and then the director will say, take number three. And so you circle that. And so that's kind of, I was doing all you're of that. The kind script, of like work. you're literally just handing the scripts to the talent. Okay. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Handing the scripts to the talent. And then like, it was cool because um, we had just a fantastic director on that show and um, she just like really knew how to, we were working with kid talent, which um, is honestly pretty, well, maybe not so much anymore. At that time, it was like pretty rare to be working with kids. I mean, even in our show, we had this issue where one of our talent, he got a little changed. older yeah. and his voice totally oh, dropped. My, uh, and, hey, <laughs> you guys ready for sucks, fifth grade? I mean, right, <laughs> exactly. I, I, feel, I felt so bad for like, it's just, it's a tough industry to make it Jeez, yeah. as an actor way and then to be like a kid and like, like going through puberty, which is like a very natural thing yeah. is the thing that gets you out of the job. Like you get fired for it. Like it just, it's, it's really sad. <laughs> and I think just added stress, but, nice. um, and aren't most boys yeah. voiced by adult women generally on cartoons, right? Yeah. There's definitely like a, um, like Nancy Cartwright of Bart right. Simpson. She's the one um, I'm thinking of. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, there's so many that that, okay. that is true, and it's and I think that using adults, that was what was cool about going from Dora, which used all like minor talent, to uh, a show like Fairly Odd Parents, which its ensemble cast was just like 
people like voice actors that had been working for years and years and years and they were like pros um and it, and because it had been on and dora was like this too because at the time that dora and friends i mean that was like 15 years of dora and different iterations so mm. there there was an element of like it being a smooth machine at that point too um but when i came yeah and and that's what's so cool about it is like like i really feel like i got from dora like the <laughs> the like behemoth that it is and um, getting to work with those, the original creators, um, Chris Gifford and Valerie Walsh Valdez of Dora, and then coming over and getting um, to work with Butch Hartman. I mean, like, I felt like I got like animation 101 because like wow. on the Dora production, but then my job too was research. Um, and Dora compared to like all the other shows that were on Nick Jr. at the time, um especially and i think definitely even now they did more testing for each episode than any other show on nick jr they um and by testing i mean like we went into preschools wow. and like showed the kids wow. um the show at different stages and we're like what did you think did you understand this like what did you like about it what didn't you like about it and got like real feedback um that informed story changes and and um so many things down the line um and that that way of testing, like we got to test. Um, this is a fun fact about animation production that I didn't know until I started working in it is that um, typically on a preschool show before you even have storyboard artists who like make the it's essentially like what a flipbook is, right? Like like those like different storyboard panels um, yeah, that then get cut into a a movie before right. that process even happens there's a, a team of artists called storybook artists who make okay. like a store a physical storybook um wow. that I we know. we would read to i wouldn't read it um but a person on the team would read it to the kids and the thing the cool thing about the storybooks was that it was like they were made to be interactive and like um so like you would have like the characters, if you had like a background of like a beach, for example, the episode was set on the Do beach you and you had see all these... uh, the sun. Right. Yeah, exactly. Behind blah, blah, you. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And behind and, me. But... <laughs> wow, someone has has watched Dora. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> El Sol. Um, exactly. <laughs> but like for example, so if if it was El Sol was the thing to learn and the yeah. kids just like weren't getting it in storybook, the sun, the actual graphic of the sun on the storybook would be on a piece of tape and we just be like, okay, fuck it. No son. We just rip it off and be like, we're doing a different story. <laughs> nice. So like it, it was, we were able to be flexible in that way. Um, and, and it's just really standard procedure for every episode. Every episode is being tested in advance. Interesting. I did not know that. Yeah. And so again, Dora was like the, from my understanding, um, and it could be different now. Um, mm -hmm. there could be another show on Nick Jr. That is testing more, but at that time, um, Dora had been because it was from the I mean it had such a specific curriculum right and it yeah. and it um it was so the goals were so I hate the word formulaic because it kind of sounds negative but it was like the expectations were so set that it was like you know it really had to work and you had to make sure that like and because it did so well too and mm. it was it was so successful that it was like there was a high bar for like every single episode needs to work every single time. And so mm. um, 
they tested a lot. So they tested three, every episode at three different stages of production. So storybook phase, um, animatic, which is when um, those kind of like the bookie storybook, um, I mean, sorry, storyboard images become one file, um, like movie file, and then final animation, which was like when it was like fully rendered after it came back okay. from the overseas animation studio. Um, but again, I don't think that any other show was testing. They might have tested once or twice throughout production that way. Okay. So you're gaining experience. You're in your new job. You're starstruck. What, did you have a goal at this point, or was the goal just, I'm going to break into the industry. I don't care what I'm doing. Was there any kind of target, or just see what happens? Totally. Um, I have wanted to be a writer since I like had conscious thought. <laughs> so okay. I, underneath all of this, it was, I want to write. I want to go out to L.A., um, I, I, at this point it was kind of like, I want to get a script coordinator job because that okay. was kind of like the next step to writing. Okay. Um, and, but I was content to just be like, I'm going to go into the Nickelodeon animation studio yes. and like meet all these people. I only saw over VC and kind of like expand my network that way. Um, but yeah, was that was this, always the underlying goal. Was this a paid gig or did you start as an unpaid intern? No, so I actually, um, I was a paid PA on Fairly okay. Odd Parents, and then I was also a paid executive assistant. And then I, okay. honestly, I was a paid intern on Dora as well, because that was the first, it was like after those like mm. unpaid intern lawsuits <laughs> were going on, and Viacom <laughs> was finally like, okay, like we need to stop taking advantage of people. <laughs> so I, it was perfect timing. I reaped the benefit yeah. of that. <laughs> Okay, so I mean, makes sense. Did you work your way up then? All right, so how long did it take you to leave that role and to go up the ladder? Totally. So I was only on um, as a PA of Fairly Odd Parents for six months, um, and again, it was great. Uh, Well-oiled machine. Butch Hartman was like similar to the the people at Dora, like really old school. So like, um, what a big part of my job. It was it was awesome because I didn't have any interaction with artists on Dora because they were all in the LA office. So mm -hmm. when I came over, my main responsibility as PA on FOP was to interact with the artists and to like hand them out assignments. So like I was having to like, like receive physical drawings that like mm. background artists had designed by hand and like wow. scan them in, which like no one does background drawing. Like these were just like old, old pros um, and not old in a bad way like just like so experienced so incredible yeah, like I've been working yeah. for so long but yeah it's like it was just incredible and so I felt like I, I again it was like an animation primer for me um and it really like illuminated the things that I wasn't seeing day to day because I was in New York um and isolated from the artist on Dora mm -hmm. um but that I basically came in toward the end of the season um and it only lasted for six months and I was kind of poking around for script coordinator positions, writers, assistant positions, um, either just even just like other PA jobs on different productions that were kind of um, starting to staff up. And it was a weird time at Nickelodeon. Like they're really, we were in between leadership. Um, there just wasn't really a lot that was getting picked up. Um, mm. So I actually ended up applying for and getting a job as the assistant um, to three vice presidents of animation production. Um, I guess maybe they're more creative executives is their title. Um, but it was basically on the network side who were, they oversee basically 
the shows in production at Nickelodeon and make sure that like the content is something that is on par with what Nickelodeon's brand is. Right. Um, and it acts as like the liaison between like productions will get a lot of requests from people in consumer products or marketing for like additional designs or like, um, you know, like approval on like, Hey, I want to make this Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles like bedspread sheet for like for Christmas or whatever. And like, we had, we were the department that basically instead of bugging the current showrunners of the current turtle show, (laughs) because they're like literally making an entire show. um, Mm -hmm. We were the ones who were like, okay, like Leonardo, you know, his sword is this color blue, not this color, like whatever. Like we had to be the ones who were kind of like policing that stuff. That is the um, wrong kind of pizza. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you idiot. Yeah. <laughs> a big thing was um, uh, I worked on SpongeBob for a year, cool. um, maybe a year and a half in that role uh-huh. of kind of being a coordinator on the network side. And okay. um, SpongeBob has a certain number of pores on his face and they're uneven. So it's not like he has like two on this side and two on this side. Um, and something that always happened was that like for marketing, like promo or like any sort of like, you know, like a lower thirds graphic that would pop up on Nickelodeon, like often mm-hmm. his pores would be flipped. And so like, I was always on like SpongeBob pore patrol. <laughs> I completely get that. You know, when I'm animated, sometimes my, my part is on the wrong side. Right. And it, it throws off your whole identity. Yeah. You have a brand to maintain here. <laughs> so you're basically like continuity for physical marketing products. Marketing sort of. and, and yes. other things. It was, okay. I mean, that was part of the job. And then the other part was like, we were reading premises, outline scripts, which is what I love because right. again, I, when I interviewed for this position and I ended up being in that department for like two and a half years and I went from assistant to coordinator. Um, I was promoted after like, I want to say like 10 months. Okay. Um, and when I was doing that, I loved reading the premises and outlines and giving notes at those writing stages um, because I still wanted to be a writer. And, and all my bosses knew that and were so, so supportive of that. So they were they let me really come in early on those, those writing materials. Um, and it was my favorite part of the job. Um, but it was really cool. I mean, at that point, I had really... I felt like I had mastered, okay, I know what like audio production and research looks like on animated shows. Mm. With FOP, I know what the the design and the artists and like the actual production pipeline, what that looks like. And then when I was in the current series department, I got a look at like the holistic view of what the animation industry is. It's not just content, although content, right? Like our department was like content is king. It's the content is the most important thing. And so how do we protect the content and make the content as good as possible while also ensuring that these other departments that are still affiliated with the Nickelodeon brand, but might have their own goals or aims, right? Um, To sell toys, whatever, but making sure that those things existed to support, right? Like it is all about the merch, but it's not the merch ultimately supports the content. It's not the other way around, you know? Um, So that was cool. SpongeBob gets a new pair of shoes this episode, you know? Right, right, right. (laughs) Conveniently Uh, available right now for (laughs) $29.99. Totally. And you know, it's interesting because that is something that like, there's definitely a factor of that in kids animation, especially. Um, And it's something that I really liked about working on, 
preschool properties the most because there's a lot of protections put in place. Like um, there would be some times when like maybe a consumer products idea or actual toy would like, they would be like, it would be awesome if it could be in this episode. Um, but the good thing about preschool content is that like, if we had a show, like an episode about like Adora hair bow or something like that, sure. we couldn't, there's literal laws against like showing advertisements for that Dora hair bow in tandem with that episode where Dora has a hair bow or even any Dora episode, honestly, um, because they just, they acknowledge that the, <laughs> that the, the audience is right. And, and the audience is so vulnerable to that yeah. suggestion. And so, um, that was a, a piece of, that's a piece of preschool that I, in general, I love preschool content because there's just more protections put in place to be like, okay, what are, what are we actually doing to service the kids that who are watching this instead of like what we need as a company? Um, and it's not to say that people aren't thinking that about six to 11 properties at all. There's, right. there's a lot there's, of intention and thought behind that. It seems but like there's almost like an inherent conflict of interest, right? It's like our money machine is selling stuff, but we can't do it, right? We can't advertise do you feel that that how do you feel about that ethically is that uh, or you just don't think about it just collect your check and well, do your work <laughs> honestly it's interesting because i also think like it's definitely conflicting and that's why i always i really did love uh, i'm currently writing on a 6 to 11 show but i previously was on a preschool show and yeah. and there's just a lot more thought even just like cognitively, what can our audience understand at this point? Um, mm -hmm. Whereas I think for we take for granted a lot in 6 to 11 that I think we kind of are just like, well, kids 6 to 11, their brains are fully developed, which is so not true <laughs> like at all. <laughs> I don't think like our brain fully develops until like our late teens. Or I'm like, still working so, like, on it. I'm right? in my mid-30s <laughs> and I've got at least a decade to go. Right? I mean, that's how I feel too. And so I, I think that there is um, – there's certainly people who are making content for six to 11 for kids age six to 11, who that are very thoughtful and intentional and, and are thinking about kind of like what is best for these kids. Um, but with preschool, it's a little bit more baked in. There's like a little bit more of a structure in place okay. for network executives, story editors, showrunners to kind of be like, okay, let's take a step back and think like, is this a joke that a, a four-year-old will find funny or is it something that we as, you know, adults, in the writing room think is funny and mm -hmm. we need to, we need to, we need to think about the kids more. Um, so, and I also think it's a weird, the consideration of like the money machine, you know, that kind of conflict of interest that you're talking about is, um, I think if you feel good about the content, I always feel good about the other stuff right. that's going. Cause as long as the content is, uh, is, protected and doing something good that you believe in. I think that the, the money realities are just things that we all have to inherently think about yep. in a capitalistic white supremacist society. So like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, you know, but I, and I, it's also weird because I think that some of those concerns are going away with like, you know, there's big studios who have only, who have been studios who have only made shows for their own networks, right? Like a Nickelodeon is a perfect example of like, yes. they are an animation studio who is making content solely for their channels. But that's just not how content is being sold and distributed anymore with things like Netflix and Hulu and Amazon. Yeah, like there's 
so that kind of like, um, and Netflix at, right now isn't really in the business of like merchandising or theme parks or any of that uh, stuff. So wait I till think they turn even, it on. I know, right? They're going to turn on Netflix that tattoo. Land. They just raised the price by a dollar. It's a, s- a sign of I things know. to come. I know. They know. They're like, oh, we need to make another billion dollars. Dink. One notch up. Right. And no one's going to say no because we're all so fucking bored in our houses. We're like, yes, we'll pay you anything. (laughs) All right. So you're in. I mean, uh, so at this point, I'm gathering. Okay. Move your way up. You're a script coordinator now. You're kind of interacting with the script itself. Are you writing at (laughs) this point? Are you, um, or just, are you starting to contribute ideas? How does that work? You're in the writer's room. Yeah. So I'm, so I got in the writer's room as a script coordinator. Um, I'm going to say it was fall of 2018. Okay. Um, I was a script coordinator on a Nickelodeon show called The Casa Grandes um, for about seven months. Okay. And that was, I got that job directly because um, of my work in the current series program and mm-hmm. they, or department. And they knew that I wanted to be a writer. And so they, they helped me make those connections. I kind of shadowed some, um, I had relationships with other script coordinators and story editors and writers in the um studio just because of what I was doing in the current series department. So I was able to get that interview and I um, got it and it was interesting and it was really great. It was a big adjustment from going from kind of like receiving, because in the current series department, we would receive premises, outline mm-hmm. scripts, fully polished. Mm. They had given it to us. And, I, and now I was kind of on the, it was very exciting, but it was very different because I was like, um, it's just like full of possibility, right? It's like a literal blank page. Blank and page, I got to yeah. kind of see that kind of process of like, what does it mean to um, come up from with a story from scratch? Um, so that was, it was a big adjustment because it was just something, and it was something that I had like always dreamed about yeah. and like had been doing in my own, right? Like I, there were parts of the process, like the blank page, the, yeah. What is ne- what is a good idea? Like, what is what makes a good story? That kind of stuff that I had been puzzling out on my own in my own writing. But it was really cool to be a part of. And the best part about TV writing is that it's so collaborative in nature, and so I was really getting to like learn. The pitches that I would say in a room um, versus not you know, like learn what, cause there are people, there's a, diff- a few different types of people in a writer's room, right? Like there's the person who's just like pitching joke, 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 joke. Yeah. Um, and then there's the person who's kind of thinking about like, but why is the character, why that does the character sense. You need a lot that, of different you know? personality types in a writer's room for it to function. That, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you so. need some, I, you know, pure creative spirits who are hilarious like me. And then you need a few wet yeah. blankets. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> she would never wear that shade of purple. But it's, so it's so funny you say that because there is really there is a type of person who in a writer's room who's just a naysayer who like I could will totally be like it. who will be like no I don't think that would work but then not <laughs> contribute any idea right. like any alternatives or like fixes or just be like this needs sounds fixing, like this U.S. politics. <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent. Right. I mean, it's <laughs> this all system sucks. Do you have another idea yeah. soon? <laughs> yep. <laughs> just trust exactly. me. Eventually, I'll have an idea. Just not right. right. Now. Yeah. Right. Do you have another idea? No, but neither does he. <laughs> yes, great. Making progress. 
So are you, right. are you happy in this moment? Are you feeling like, okay, I'm living my dream? I mean, here you are in Hollywood. You've achieved something that very few people can do. I mean, you're on big name shows that everybody would know, that people who have kids would have seen. Um, are you happy? Are you feeling like you made it or no? Yes, I definitely feel like once I got into a writer's room, I was like this, it, it confirmed that I wanted to, that that my hunch was correct, that I would be good at the job. Because um, that's always a fear, right? Of like mm -hmm. this thing that you are are working towards and, and being like, you, so I, I was so hyper-focused on it, right? I was right. so like, um, just like, zeroed in on it and and there's that fear of like oh god am i gonna be terrible at it or like am i gonna hate it like am i gonna like um well there's that oscar wilde quote right there's two tragedies in life one is never getting what you want and the other is getting it yeah so i try to think about that sometimes but you're you got it and you're reasonably happy so i guess it doesn't strictly speaking apply here well no i mean it i mean it, to be honest there was um there was a big adjustment period. Adjustment period. There was a big like, um, like that room on the Casa Grandes for a really long time until we got a new story editor who kind of um, switched up our schedule a little bit. We were in the room from like ten to six every day mm -hmm. with just like an hour and a half of lunch, um, okay. which is still like a great lunch break. Like not complaining about that, but right. like we were like on having to be together in a room with like to your point earlier there's a lot of different personalities and like that how many people are in there so at the start we had seven okay. including me yeah okay. and then our showrunner was kind of show running two shows at the time so he would bounce back and forth between writers mm -hmm. rooms so he would spend either the morning or the afternoon with us um, but we were in the room, the six of us, constantly. Mm. Um, maybe there was eight. Okay. I can't remember now. And there was a few people coming in and out. <laughs> okay. from, from Genesis to the final episode, what is the timeline? So from blank page to it's on the air, how long? It's about one year. Oh, my um, God. Yeah, it's crazy. Because <laughs> it, it goes from the writing... Um, and, you, no, and you're not, and you still like the idea a year later. Is it ever a point where you're like, man, that sucks? Like, I look at stuff I did a year ago and I'm like, Ugh, oh, God. Do you feel like, it's like that was a stupid idea? I mean, a year is a long time. Or is it always like, oh, I'm really proud of that? Yeah, well, you know, the, the, great, the great and terrible thing about TV rating is that, again, that collaborative aspect of like, even if it's your episode and you mm -hmm. come in and you're like, this is, my premise, it is four sentences of pure solid gold. Like yeah. no one will find a plot hole. I worked right. so hard on it. it. It all goes out the window as soon as you introduce other people to it, right? Okay. Um, and so you have to really, I mean, it's an exercise in shedding your ego every single day. Mm -hmm. And um, it's something that I'm super grateful for because um, I think I need it. <laughs> it makes me a better writer time and time again. Mm -hmm. um, and it also just makes me like a better human because mm. there are, there are stories that I can think back on and be like, honestly, it was better when we didn't open up to the room and all these people had <laughs> ideas about it. And like the original, like pure nugget that I had thought about, um, cause like, I think something that I really bring to the table in writing is like, um, 
writing like emotional mm. heart-centered stories. And so I always, when I think of a story, I try to think of like, what is like a really tender, like relatable mm. thing to a kid that mm. like, I wish I had seen, you know, as a kid too, of like something a little bit more real than what yeah. we're used to seeing in cartoons, especially that's just like slapstick slapstick. Like what are those kinds of, you know, things. And so, so that's where I'm coming out whenever I'm coming up with a story. And then, um, because it is for kids, like you need jokes, you need comedy, you need these other, and you need structure, right. Depending on what show you're on the Casa Grande, this was like a very specific structure. Um, and we had certain points that we had to hit on like down to like the page numbers of like this, this has to happen here. This has to happen mm. here. But like things get muddied, like in that process, because it, it's, there are so many different other things that you have to service um, and you just have to let it go. <laughs> like that's, that's been the biggest thing for me is that it's like, I just, um, you know, it was, it, it's purely collaborative. It is every single person has touched it and that's what makes it special. Not that it's, that it was my genius idea that right. <laughs> came to life. It's really a product of the room. Yeah. Right. Interesting. <laughs> So obviously when you're when you're working with stuff for kids, I think sort of the elephant in the room is always, I mean, children are really impressionable. My two-year-old loves Blippi, which I cannot stand. If you don't know who Blippi is, I don't, don't know Blippi. Don't. Okay. Just don't even go there. <laughs> but they're really impressionable. And, you know, yeah. according to Middle America, you are personally responsible for indoctrinating kids with your leftist, fake news, horrible agenda. You're ruining children all over the world with your Absolutely. propaganda, right? I'm proud of it. So, so, <laughs> so to what degree, I mean, obviously you have to be super conscious of what you say, what you don't say, whether something is political, because there's a lot of stuff that we wouldn't think of as political, but then other people say, oh, that's political, or that's a point of view. To, to what degree does that influence the work, the process? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to, it really depends on show to show and it depends on writer to writer because I would say that I'm a person who thinks that everything personal is political, right? Like, um, and I, I came into writing for children with this very specific intention to write socially conscious media for kids um, to showcase families like mine that weren't really on shows that I watched growing up to, to like, I'm a person who is balancing lots of different marginalized identities and also lots of different, um, like privileged identities. And so showcasing like the nuance and complexity of identity for kids, because it's something that I struggled with, um, and was conscious yeah. of yeah. <laughs> from like, the, again, the time that I had conscious thought, like I've had to think about what what who I am or what I look like or what my family looks like or or you know who I have a crush on like all of that mm -hmm. stuff has been very um politicized for me mm -hmm. from a young age so yeah. like I always come at it from the space of like kids are already thinking about these things um sure. especially kids who have marginalized identities um you know BIPOC kids queer kids um, gender non-conforming kids, mm -hmm. uh, non-Christian kids, like they're always, they're already mm -hmm. doing that kind of work. And so they have to, um, differently abled kids, um, mm -hmm. they have to like, they, there needs to be some sort of recognition because to say that, like, I really take issue with the thing of this idea that like, 
well, you know, we don't, we don't talk about that in front of mm. like kids are too young to talk about this sure. or, or they're not going to understand this. And, right. and I think, you know, and it is a balance because there, there does have to be, um, we literally have people, especially in preschool weigh in on like cognitive abilities of children. Um, like that is something that we have to consider. And, and, Definitely. um, you know, I think that's, that there, that can be an obstacle, but I think there can always be a way of like, okay, well, if we can't say, you know, if, if we can't talk about, if this expert, this psychologist is saying that like four-year-olds don't understand this issue, mm -hmm. how do we talk about it so that mm -hmm. they do understand? Yeah. Um, Wow. And I, and not everyone who works in children's media thinks like this, you know? And so I right. really had to own that that is my intent and that I'm coming into a room always thinking about that and, and trying and, to be and more conscious how, of it. How diverse are these rooms in your experience? Is it all white men or what's the uh, makeup generally? Um, I would say that it's becoming more diverse. Okay. Um, I, I think that... There's been a really interesting trend that I've noticed um, that that live action productions are starting to also be more conscious about diversity. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's been some people, some not people, some straight white cis men it, mm -hmm. who are like middle aged, maybe who have worked in live action for a long time Forever, yeah, and sure. are right and are finding that. Um, there are just like any networks or showrunners that they've been working with in the past are maybe focusing on more diverse stories and, um, and their opportunities are kind of shifting. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm never going to be someone who says that like marginalized people are taking jobs from straight white men because that's just not true. But <laughs> I think that there definitely has been a shift in focus. Right. And so I think that there has been, and I also think that like, Live action jobs seem hard as fuck. Um, they seem really intense. Like the hours are really long. I think a lot of people see animation work as really desirable because we have like pretty set 10 to six, 10 to seven jobs. Um, if and there's no like last minute running around. It sounds like it's a well-oiled machine at least. Right. It's I mean, like you can have, right. And you, ha you will have inevitably weeks that are, more frantic than others if you're mm. up against a deadline or whatever, but like yeah. you, you will be able to anticipate those weeks like right. months in advance. So like oh, okay. it's, it's, it's perfect for people too, who like have families or young kids. Like it's yeah. a really good job for work-life balance in a way oh, that great. like um, live action sometimes isn't like, I think um, and, and the, and the trade-off, right. Is that like people who write, live action shows or just are on set on live action shows, they have a hiatus typically mm -hmm. between seasons and mm -hmm. animation doesn't, you usually just roll right into the next season. Um, okay. yep. So there's more stability and more job security, um, but yeah. not as many breaks. So anyway, I think there's been what I've seen, yeah. there's been a little bit of a trend of um, maybe some more, uh, a little bit like, bitter or like <laughs> uh, frustrated straight white mm. cis men who are middle-aged yeah. who have been accustomed to working in live action rooms suddenly finding different opportunities or, or yeah. not as many opportunities and coming over to animation um, which is like never a problem right like we mm -hmm. we love new voices I think um, there's something in animation for everyone um, mm -hmm. but I there's 
this trend of people like that coming over and having like a um, kind of looking down on animation because like we don't get paid as much as live action writers. Um, I think especially if you're if someone is writing for kids, a lot of people look down on thing on people who write for children. Um, you must be <laughs> it's stupid. a really right, <laughs> exactly. Like it's like you're dumbing you're dumbing yeah, yourself yeah. down or writing dumb right. content, which is in my opinion, very disrespectful um, sure. to both the right, people who are writing it, but also to children. Right. <laughs> because, yes, like, I agree Children with that. are our future. <laughs> like, yes. Children are um, much smarter. They get they They don't get enough credit for how smart they are. Yes. Yeah. Generally. And I'm sure you see that with Zoko oh, yes, all the time. Absolutely. Like, absolutely. Just the things they pick up on. Yes, and, and remarkable. Yeah. And so, so that's, I think, been a trend of, um, that's really unfortunate because it, it, it puts you in a position if you're someone like me who's so passionate about what I do and why I do it. Yeah. It puts me in the immediate defensive um, yes. of being like this. This project is worthy of something, you know. Yeah, <laughs> like you right. should give a shit about it. Yes. And and then I also think that as like a mixed race queer female, like mm-hmm. who's never afraid to speak their mind in a radius room, like mm-hmm. that message is. Um, maybe poorly received sometimes yeah, sure. because there's, there's already those dynamics at play and, and sure. that I've definitely experienced that. And it, it just sucks because at the end of the day, it just creates drama. Yeah. And I'm like, I just want to be focusing on writing the best show ever. And right. I can't because I have to explain to this like privileged man that mm-hmm. like he's lucky to be here and he should be like, you know, not taking this for granted and mm-hmm. like giving a shit about it. And that mm-hmm. is frustrating. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, so obviously, well, we'll switch gears in just a second. I have one question for you. So about animation. Mm-hmm. So I mean, a lot of our, our definition of things is changing day by day. Like our whole culture is moving, hopefully in, in some positive directions, but also in some really bad directions hopefully. at the same time. A little bit of both. Um, yeah. You know, normally when things change, I think okay, that that totally makes sense. But one of the ones that kind of rocked my world personally that changed was the cancellation of the voicing of Apu from The Simpsons. Um, because I grew up with The Simpsons, and I love The Simpsons. I mean, I saw Aziz Ansari's thing on Master of None. Like, I totally get it. I completely get the uh, perspective of Indian. But, like, I also just loved that character. And when they announced, mm-hmm. like, okay, this this is no, this is not happening anymore, that was one of the very few times when I thought, like, oh, that's a bummer. Because, like, I'm just, I'm going to miss that guy. Um, right. You know, do you, what do you feel about that? Do you feel that's the right call? Do you feel that's an overreaction? I think it's the right call. And I Mm -hmm. think that like, I think there's room to make space for like people who like you, who feel a affinity for a character, um, who grew up with a character. Right. Right. Um, and, and also be like the entire time that you were maybe enjoying this character. Other people pain to other really people right yeah. yeah 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 and so i think that there's a way to to make space for both of that and then also yeah. just kind of i think we're just in a time where the and i'm not as familiar with this specific case too like mm-hmm. i don't know like if there had been people protesting mm-hmm. like this voice actor or, or the use of this voice actor rather yeah. for years. Like I don't, I'm not really plugged into that. I guess that, I'm but not like, super familiar with it. I think he was just one of the examples of this is how Indian people have been portrayed. Right. You know, which has been a problem, but. Right. Um, and I think, well, and I think that kind of, that kind of st- 
stuff is, or that knowledge. Um, There's a lot of people coming forward and being like, enough is enough. Mm -hmm. And it feels like it's very recent, but I think that there have been people who have been Mm -hmm. talking about representation for as long as, yeah, (laughs) as long as every kind of person on the planet has been represented in media. So I think that like there, um, and for me too, like I'm not an Indian person. I'm not, um, of Indian heritage at all. And so like there are, I think something that I really try to do when I'm interacting with media or reading an article like that, um, and it's about an identity that I don't have, I'm kind of trying to be like, well, what are my blind, Mm. like if I'm feeling kind of like ambivalent about Mm. this, that means that I have privilege around it, right? Yeah, there's there's something to unpack. Perhaps right, and, and something that like I, yeah. um, I have to rely on people that don't share my identities, that share mm-hmm. the identities of whatever the the group yeah. represent represented and is contested. Um, I have to take my cues from them, you know. Sure. And so, yeah. um, and it's tough because I I think that like any sort of change, it feels. I think it's just also the way that the media talks about Mm -hmm. these kinds of things and like the way like um you know like jenny slate and Kristen bell stepping down from their roles of voicing mixed white and black characters Mm -hmm. and animated shows this past summer was kind of like in response to this resurgence of black lives matter movement from what i understood and um i think that 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 like intensity of reaction Mm it's always going to have an intense reaction the other way. Right. Like, so it's like, and, and um, just recognizing that, like, that I think that what they did was the right thing to do, but that it came kind of too late. Like those were things that should have happened in the casting conversations. And all we can do really, as we're actively making content moving forward is making sure that those things are brought up the moment that they should be brought up, which is in casting discussions. And that's what you're there for, to, to, to start things off on the right foot, basically. To, yeah, to hopefully influence like, the ideas and totally. tonality. Right. Okay. And, and like, again, like myself and so many other people mm-hmm. who are like, have different marginalized identities and yeah. are just you know and and something that i really am trying to take for myself is like again is really taking a step back and being like like for example the show that i'm working on now um we have a a character who has a um, physical disability and we were kind of talking about like what does this person think about their physical disability or like what does yeah um like would they have modifications to their home or like mm-hmm. all, and and it was four able-bodied people on a zoom call talking about this this person and at, at a certain yeah. point we kind of all were just like we are not the people to answer this um yeah. we need to get a consultant in the room we need to um you know reach out to our networks we need to mm-hmm. think about like do we hire a freelancer who has a physical disability like the, yeah. like um those kinds of things of, of sure. catching yourself because you're not going to be perfect. I certainly am not. I, um, 
And that's the other thing too, just you asked a question about like the diversity of the rooms. Mm -hmm. And I would say that like, um, like the way that my agent kind of like uh, pitches me is as a diversity hire because I do have <laughs> lots of marginalized identities, but I'm also... <laughs> That's the. I'm also seventy-five percent white. You know Some what I mean. Real like Hollywood not... insight right there for our listeners. <laughs> right. Yes. No. I mean, and and I think it's good. Like, I do think that you need to have like a one sentence like pitch about yourself because, yeah. um, and especially if you have a marginalized identity or multiple of them, right. like use that as much as possible. That yeah. I will always stand by that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think what's unfortunate is that I've been in the situation where um, people see me. Right, they see my bio and they see that it says diverse hire. Um, and they're like, great, that checks all of our Done. boxes. Yeah, and so I've good. been in rooms, right, exactly. I've been in rooms where I'm like the darkest person in the mm -hmm. room, which is insane because again, I am mostly white. Um, I'm a quarter Filipino, but, and I've, you know, been asked questions about like how best to portray a black American character in a show. And I'm like, mm -hmm. I am not the person to answer that. Like right. I, I have a lot of unpacking and work that I'm sure. need to be doing. And so there's, it really, you know, de the best thing to do is to staff diversely across all genders, yes. across yes. all races, across all ethnicities, yes. religions, all of that stuff. Um, like geographical backgrounds, like all of that, because to say that one person who has like three marginalized identities mm. is is making, all of them, uh, you know, right, it all. Is, right, exactly. And like, yeah, so anyway, so I, I would say just like staffing up as diverse yeah. as possible, because then you can have people checking other people in the room, right. And, and in sense. a good writer's room, you want to have that kind of tension and that kind yes. of, um, Hey, I think, and, and it has to be respectful, obviously, like no one should be a dick, but like, right. um, like, I think there needs to be that kind of like, did you consider this? And like, from my experience as a Jewish person, like this actually feels like kind of like mm -hmm. vaguely anti-Semitic. like, let's mm -hmm. talk about it. You know, like there's like those kinds of, um, conversations that needs to happen. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel really fortunate that, um, I'm currently in a room that for the first time ever, I feel like it's staffed in a way that there are lots of people who have different marginalized identities yeah. and who are balancing those same as me, but they're different from me. So we, we can kind of inform each other and keep each other in check. Um, and I don't, ha I don't feel like I have to be like the gatekeeper for all <laughs> uh, appropriate right. managing of diverse characters, sure. um, which is how I felt in the past. And it felt like it was not um, yeah. earned or deserved on my part right, right. at all. <laughs> So you've you've now transitioned into I mean you've written books you're a published author now children's books mm -hmm. and you gave us a copy of one of your books Maiden and yes. Princess right Yes Um so was that your first published book or were there others It was okay. Yeah so that's my first and only right First now. and only published <laughs> book so and people can buy this who are Yes you can buy it um on Amazon but if you're trying to not use Amazon like me um <laughs> You can find it at most like indie bookstores. I know Skylight has some um, SO1 books, yes. um, which is a black owned bookstore in LA. The Ripped Bodice, which is an awesome feminist romance bookstore. Cool. Well, this book is great. I mean, it's illustrated beautifully. It's an amazing book. Um, what is quickly the story, the idea of this book? Sure. Uh, Maiden and Princess is a lesbian fairy tale romance. Um, and it kind of, 
you see a lot of the typical fairy tale tropes, dragons, battles, balls, dancing under the stars, all that stuff. Um, but just with a uh, lesbian couple, um, a maiden and a princess. And uh, yeah, it was super fun to write. I had a co-author, um, Daniel Hack, who he actually uh, the previous year published a book called Prince and Knight of kind of the same, um, you know, idea of uh, kind of subverting those, some of those like very familiar fairy tale tropes, but with um, two men at the romantic sure. core. Yeah. And he really wanted to write kind of like a spiritual sequel um, of sorts. And he brought me on board um, in a really awesome way because he was kind cool. of like, I'm, I want to write this book about two queer women, but like, I'm not a queer woman. So like, I need a queer woman to help me. Um, and I thought that was really cool of him. That's awesome. Yeah. It's a great book. Anybody out there, go pick it up, go buy yourself a copy. You're going to love it. Uh, it's beautiful. So thanks for that as a gift. Um, now Hi. we've, we've been talking, it's been wonderful talking. Uh, now we enter the point where we do a bit of rapid fire questions. Okay. So we're going to do oh, a couple God. just rapid fire <laughs> things so okay. don't don't think too much all right just okay. we're just gonna power through this okay so first do you read if so how much per week and do you read for pleasure or for self-improvement oh yes i read um i would say i read like maybe 20 minutes to an hour a day um and i almost always read for pleasure I'm really into fiction of all kinds, um, but especially like fantasy and sci-fi YA stuff. Okay, got it. All right, what is your best tip for people out there who may be considering becoming a TV writer or who may want to follow in your footsteps? Um, really just figure out what your voice is and what your purpose for writing is um, because you can take you can read Save the Cat, you can take screenwriting classes, you're gonna figure out, even if you're introverted, you'll figure out how to network. All of that stuff is teachable. You can even learn structure and, and how to write better um, over time, but you can't learn what makes your voice yours. Um, it, you have to just listen. It's already in you, you have to listen to it um, and really be brave enough to cultivate it because it can be scary mm. sometimes. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. That makes sense. Okay, got it. That's great. Um, who do you admire most in your field or in your line of work? Mm, um, probably Shonda Rhimes. She's okay. just a badass uh, sure. boss lady. I'm also rewatching Grey's Anatomy in quarantine. Okay. It's been great. It's so well written. I never got into that yeah. one, but I've heard only good things. I just missed it's it somehow when it came around the first time. It's so good. It's okay. just, and it's written so beautifully. Um, and she's just like a hit maker, you know, like I yeah. think her, her output level is, um, yep. is really incredible. And she recently wrote a really cool, um, or they did a Hollywood reporter did a really cool, um, feature about her and all her moving from Disney ABC to Netflix. So highly awesome. recommend everyone check that out. What is the smartest piece of advice you've ever received? <laughs> oh God. Um, smartest piece of advice I've ever received. Can you tell that I give a lot of advice and I don't listen to a lot of others? Um, <laughs> uh, can we go on to the next one and I'll think about it? <laughs> okay. All right. What is your goal right now? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, 
My goal right now in this present moment is to have more fun because I've been working way too much and taking on way too many different assignments um, and I need to just pare down and like just like fucking have fun <laughs> I haven't been having I mean it's hard to have fun and find joy in 2020 as we yes, all know but um, yes I've been particularly bad at it so I'm yeah. trying to find joy okay that's great what is something you believe that almost no one else believes Jesus um I don't know. I don't think I'm that original that I have a thought that someone else doesn't. <laughs> I don't have a thought. Thing. I like, I mean, <laughs> yeah, like, I, I don't know. Like, I, I, which is ironic because I can't even think of the best advice that I've ever been given. But I'm also now saying that I, I'm okay. only yes. who I am because of people before me. But um, I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Um, all right. We'll skip. Where have you gone against <laughs> conventional wisdom in your career? Oh, constantly. Um, I'm like, I leave jobs often. <laughs> mm. I think as soon as I start feeling too comfortable, I leave a job, um, which I think a lot of people would say, no, stay for the comfort, stay mm. for the security. Um, I'm like allergic to comfort and security. Uh, uh, yeah, when I moved to LA, everyone was like, what the fuck are you thinking? You know no one there besides your family friends. You don't have a job. Do you like whatever? And then yeah. I was like, no, I just have to do it. I just knew it. Um, yeah. So I try to trust my gut and intuition in those moments. Sounds good. All right. And the last one, who do you think has the most unusual success story that you know personally? That I know personally. Mm. Uh, my old boss, Jennifer Skelly, um, <laughs> has just had like 47 careers. Um, she's just like one of those incredible people who just like reinvent herself all the time. She's like an actress, a teacher, a scientist. She's like been in multiple different degree programs. Now she's a showrunner of a preschool television show. Um, and she just like she's the best person to have in a room because she's had so much life experience. Like she can just give you animal facts for, for whatever you need for that episode. Animal facts. Nice. <laughs> well, thank you so much as well. This has been wonderful. Thanks for taking the time to do this. Um, it's been a lot of fun. Hopefully there's some good things in there for people, but I really appreciate yeah. you sitting down with me today. Yes, of course. Thank you so much for having me. And this concludes the podcast. We're done. Yes. <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs>